Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is, this is a real big bit of pop culture, and I'm just going to put it down as, and I presume the name of the episode's going to be The Speech. Because as soon as I say The Speech, you all know what I'm talking about. It's that moment in the movie when things are looking at their grimmest, and then either the leader or a reluctant hero or whoever gets up and says something. And it says something to soaring music so much that the whole ragtag bunch of them rise up and they're gonna go and win. Now, this might be put into the mouth of a real person. For example... Will you fight? We will live. Aye. Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. At least a while. I'm dying in your beds many years from now. Would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Now, the thing about Braveheart, I've obviously done a whole episode about it. Obviously, it's not very historically accurate, but why was it a big hit? Why did it win Oscars? Because it's a really good movie. If it was all set in, I don't know, Tatooine, and we all knew it was made up, I would have no problem with it whatsoever, but the writing is excellent. That speech with music, just everybody, forget about Scottish people for a moment, everybody listens to that and goes, yeah, let's get up, I want freedom. So yeah, that makes complete sense. Sometimes you get it in the words of somebody who is obviously made up. I didn't think it would end this way. End? Now the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path. One that we always take. The grey rain curtain of this world rolls back and 
turns to silver glass. And then you see it. What? And else? See what? White shores. And beyond. The far green country. And a swift sunrise. Isn't so bad. No. No, it isn't. So that's from Lord of the Rings, which is kind of a medieval setting as well. It's similar, shall we say, to the world of Braveheart. But what you've got there is obviously again this big rousing. But look, it could be a sports movie. There's even a film. Twenty. Tens, the King's Speech, where the whole point of the film is we have the new reluctant King of England, Elizabeth II's dad, by the way, played by Colin Firth, who won an Oscar for it, and he has a speech impediment, but he is going to be the voice of Britain and the British Empire during World War II, and he don't talk too good, not because of any poor accent or anything like that, but he's a stammerer. So you've basically got a true story of a king who doesn't have his voice. And that's not what he needed at that moment in time. And he really had to struggle with it. And it is a largely true story. What I find interesting is I'm going to say the king's speech is kind of the last film of its type. Now, please don't get me wrong. There are lots of films about World War Two and the British aristocracy, etc. But the thing is... This was all historically accurate. So, apart from the Queen Mother, who's played by Helena Bonham Carter, pretty much the whole thing is white men. And that is completely historically accurate. The king was white. The guy who was helping him was white. The people in Buckingham Palace were white. But nowadays, that just wouldn't be allowed. It would be a case of, we need to add a bit of colour to this. We need to add a bit of diversity to this. And so... Some of the footmen might be Indian origin or or black or something like that. There is a decided lack of colour in that film, which again actually makes it historically accurate. But to the modern audience, it's like mm, that doesn't really reflect modern Britain or America. And you're right, but it is that sort of thing where where do we fit in the colour when it wasn't necessarily actually there? And same thing with Braveheart as well. Again, nobody's really gone back and said, where's the diversity there? Uh, because, again, in the Scottish Highlands, in the medieval era, there just wasn't a lot of people who came from different climes and therefore would have different skin tones. And we know nothing about the gay community of Scotland in the 1200s. So, anyway. So you got the point there that talking well is so important. And we all respect a good speech. Obviously, it's harder to do in the political world because you're not necessarily going to agree with the person who's doing the speaking. But this is my point. And if you like, I'm going to jump a little bit into the history and then I'm going to come back to the pop culture and then I'm going back to the history. We're sort of going backwards and forwards on this one. The point is this. Public speaking, good speech craft is a skill. And if somebody's good at it, the only thing you know about that person in terms of their moral fibre or background or anything else 
is they are good at that skill. It's a bit like driving, okay? Some people can drive fine. Some people are highly skilled drivers like Lewis Hamilton or something like that. But that doesn't tell you anything about their personality. Now, for the record, Lewis Hamilton is, you know, quite sort of socially aware and he's a vegetarian, I believe. And, you know, he, he sort of like talks about, you know, giving people of colour an opportunity in this very white dominated marketplace of Formula One, etc. So, yes, I take the point, but hopefully you can understand that you don't know if he's necessarily going to laugh at your jokes just because of the way he drives. And it's the same thing with politicians. As I'm going to go through this, I might well mention a politician or a figure from history that you fundamentally disagree with. Fine, good. Some of these I would agree with you, but that doesn't take away the fact that they were good at public speaking. And that's the interesting thing, because we do tend to think that if somebody is saying a speech so compelling that it talks to us inside our heads well that's part of rhetoric which is a whole skill which i'll be coming on to a little bit later on but the point is we feel like well if they're talking to me then i've got to like them and that's a political trick maybe you don't like them maybe you begrudgingly give them a bit of respect maybe you are reviled by them but or recoil from what they say but are you necessarily listening to it as the intended audience sometimes you will hear speeches that are not aimed at you, in which case it won't work on you, but it'll work on the intended audience. Again, a lot more about that a bit later on. But here's the thing. Why are these speeches so good and memorable in these movies and TV shows? And the answer is because they're written by screenwriters. And that's the thing. Going back to Braveheart, Braveheart, you know, William Wallace genuinely existed. He did a few of the things, and only a few of the things that he did in the movie, but we have no written record of what he said. It's the same thing if we're going to go to, you might well know the line from Henry V just before the Battle of Agincourt, the St. Crispin's Day speech. I'll do a little bit now. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds blood with me shall be my brother. So, great line. And we know for a fact that Henry V, just before the Battle of Agincourt, when the English troops were badly outnumbered and were really ill after doing the siege of half Floor, it was a successful siege, but after a long siege, armies are generally going to be sick and quite literally exhausted, and now they bumped into a much larger French army that could well annihilate them the next day. And we know for a fact that Henry went round and really roused up the troops. But we don't know what he said. What I have just quoted is what Shakespeare puts into his mouth. Now, Shakespeare was writing about 150 years later, and we all know that Shakespeare never let the facts get in the way of a good story. Now, could Henry V have said something like that? Yeah, he could. It, it's not unrealistic. It's, it's not wildly out there. But the point is Shakespeare had the chance to write it, and then redraft it, and redo it, and rewrite it, and that might have been his fifth attempt at the speech, and it was a very good speech. We could all agree one of the things that people remember from Shakespeare, amongst many of his skills, is he puts a good speech in people's mouths. We know Henry said the right thing to his intended audience then and there just before the Battle of Agincourt, but was it that? 
No historian's going to say, yes, it was that. But people start confusing these things to sort of thinking, well, if Shakespeare's writing it, he's writing it from olden days, and this is about olden days, so he must have known. And the answer is no. But it's not, you know, I may be picking on Shakespeare right now, but the Latin and Roman writers from the period of the you know, Roman Empire, they were putting words in people's mouths. Julius Caesar did it to himself. He wrote his Gallic Wars book, and obviously he's going to put himself in a better light. And obviously he's writing it after the event so he can make himself more eloquent. Now, the fact that he wrote a whole book about it shows you he was an eloquent man anyway. But you're just going to knock all the sharp edges off when it comes to the rewrite of history, aren't you? So the point here is that the screenwriters love their words. They're wordsmiths, basically. And so putting a speech in someone's mouth is the high point, basically, for any kind of screenwriter or stage writer. Like I said, Shakespeare, for example. There are loads of speeches in Greek plays from two and a half thousand years ago, put in the mouths of real historical figures from ancient Greece that are clearly written for a theatrical audience and highly unlikely what they were going to say at that time. Obviously, there is a form of speech writing that happens all the time, and we all love it, and that is, of course, stand-up comedy. Because that's what it is. It's them standing there, talking on their own into a microphone. They're not looking for crowd participation, by the way. Woe betide you if you try and heckle an established comedian. They will take you down. But what they're trying to do is get their stuff out. Now, the really skilled ones will make it look like it's come off the top of their head. But if you see them a couple of times, you'll realize that actually this was well rehearsed. But the skill is to make it look spontaneous. The crowds love it. Now, sadly, I can never remember the name of this guy. But in the 1950s and early 60s in Britain, there was a stand-up comic that was loved in Britain. And basically, he would come onto stage, and it was a really fast pace of jokes, okay? But he would always nervously look off to the side. And he was doing it fast because the image he was portraying to everybody is his routine was so risque, so dangerous, so naughty, if you like, that the authorities could shut him down at any moment. But, and the crowds absolutely loved it. One of the most engaging things you can say to another human being is... Do you want to know a secret? Because nobody's ever going to turn around and say, no, I'm fine. Good with that. People want to know what's next. What is the secret? Uh, everyone wants the juice, basically. And so people loved the fact that this comedian looked like he was telling them something taboo, you know, uh, sort of anti-authoritarian or whatever. Now, do you think there was actually any police set standing there in the sidelines? Of course they weren't. And But it's the image. And that's the thing, you know, the stand-up comics, when they walk up onto stage, they have thought about their dress code. They may be standing there in a shabby pair of jeans and a t-shirt, and the point is, they chose to wear that because A, it's comfortable, but B, it means I'm, I'm like you guys. Even though they're now a multi-millionaire, I'm one of you. Um, or maybe, you know, sometimes they walk out on a suit. It's like, I'm going to give you an evening of entertainment. Or in the case of Somebody like Lee Evans, who, yes, he does do stand-up comedy in the sense of he says things, 
But in his prime, and he is retired now, he was very much a physical comedian. And seeing somebody distort their body like that in a business suit, in inverted commas, and you could see by the end of Act 1 or Part 1, you could see the back outside of the suit dripping with sweat. That's how much energy and effort he's putting into it. Then, yeah, you can see that he's definitely putting on the effort there. A similar version of that was James Brown. He would do his set and then basically he would have members of his entourage come out and throw like a robe over him, like a boxer at the end of a heavyweight bout. And he would sort of stoop at that point. In other words, it was a way of saying to the audience, I'm finished now. Thanks very much for coming. But also he's showing to them, I've given you everything. I'm spent. I'm done. And these are all tricks to entertain, to stimulate, to get the crowd going. You know, when I saw that the greatest, it's not speech, we're now talking about musician here, but the greatest live act I've ever seen was Prince. And when he came on in the old Earl's Court, well, first of all, the way he made his entrance is he kind of ran onto stage, he then went down into basically the splits, then he came back up onto his Cuban heels, grabbed the microphone and started singing. And he did all this in one fluid motion. And it was like, okay, the man can move and I'm in. I'm in in the first three seconds. He just had that screen presence or stage presence in that case. Some people have it in inverted commas. You know, they may not be the best singer or best actor or whatever, but it's just electrifying seeing them. You can see this with certain types of politicians. What I find interesting, and I will get political here for a moment, the single most successful Labour leader, this is left-wing party in Britain of all time, the only one to win three elections in a row was Tony Blair. And Tony Blair was a breath of fresh air in the 1990s. He blew away nearly 20 years of conservative right-wing rule under Margaret Thatcher and John Major. And people saw him as vibrant. He got bands, you know, the hottest bands of the time. Britpop was a big thing back in 1997. And so bands like Oasis and Blur were invited to number 10 Downing Street. He would talk about how he could play the electric guitar. He was a good public speaker. He was, if you like, the British version of somebody like Bill Clinton, who again, you know, he played the saxophone. He was a bit cool for a president. Blair was a bit cool for a prime minister, but he got embroiled in the Iraq war. And actually, there's going to be a bit more about that later on. And so now he's toxic to his own party. People in the Labour Party kind of don't count Tony Blair, which is like, really? He gave you three election victories in a row. Nobody else has done that. Instead, they talk about someone like Clement Attlee. You know, he was Prime Minister after Churchill and tail end of World War II. The reason why the Labour love him is because NHS, great, tick, huge tick, absolutely, no argument there, great, great thing to do. Brought the troops home, yes, fine. But, you know, people forget he was the Prime Minister under which partition, the, the cutting up, carving up of India into three different countries happened. Hundreds of thousands of people died with that decision. Clement Attlee. Also, he, with no parliamentary supervision, he started Britain's nuclear weapons programme. Neither of those things sound particularly Labour to me. So, you know, it's one of these things. If you want to stand there and start picking a political figure to pieces, none of them are perfect. You're always going to find flaws. But if they are on your side, you'll tend to look past the flaws. And then you get the speeches. And somebody like a very divisive figure recently in British history, you get someone like Boris Johnson. Now, he did a great job of portraying the image he wanted to portray. You know, he would ruffle his hair, even if he was inside, his hair was always a mess, but it kind of made him 
being a little bit disheveled, a bit more realistic. You know, he he would quote Latin and French, and you know, he was honest about the fact that you know he went to Eton and Oxford and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, he was sort of a bit bumbly, so which took the edges off the elitism. And if you're turning around going, I absolutely hate Boris Johnson, again, there are many reasons to do so, and he even got ousted by his own party. It is worth remembering that in 2019, he won a massive election victory over Labour. So, you know, he did the right things to the right people to win people over. Now you're going to say that probably politicians are liars, but here's the thing. You don't win an election by telling lots of hard truths and being very quiet and logical. Don't believe me? Ask Gordon Brown. So the point is, there has to be this showmanship. And Boris got that. And until you understand that in a democracy, it's about getting people's attention rather than necessarily having the best policies, you're going to keep losing. Tony Blair, again, understood that. He spent years laying the groundwork, making Labour electable, and then he got in three times in a row. He even won elections after the invasion of Iraq. So he had to be doing something right. And and this is one of these things. Do you want power or do you want to sit on the sidelines with no power, but being very, very right? And sometimes you have to make compromises. Really, in a democracy, that's the secret. So yes, we can talk about something divisive like politics. We can talk about something non-divisive like stand-up comedy. But even then, People might say the wrong joke and get cancelled or something like that, or they start challenging the, the norms. Good comedy should be a little bit political, or at least social, if you like, pointing out inconsistencies in the way that the the current system works. And obviously you've got the, the speeches in movies. There are just so many of these. You'll have your favourites, as do I, but it's about respecting the skill here, not necessarily agreeing with the person. So I want to go into a little bit of history now. And as I pointed out, there have been sort of preserved speeches from way back in the past. And I'll be telling you about some of the secrets, like I say, about things like rhetoric in a little bit. But first of all, I want to start off with what is widely considered the greatest speech of the 19th century, the 1800s. And also, it's one of the shortest speeches from the 19th century, and you will probably recognize it. I'm going to read it in its entirety, but look, it's less than 250 words. This won't take long. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created, are created equal. equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great, on a great battlefield, battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that their nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave, brave men, men living and dead who struggled here have hallowed it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, while it can never forget what they did here. It, it is, is rather for us, us the living rather the living. to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from, from these, these honored, honored dead, dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here 
gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve these dead shall not have died in vain. That the nation shall have a new birth of freedom. And that, that government, government of, of the, the people, people by, by the people, people for, for the people, people shall not, not perish, perish from, from the, the earth. earth. That was said on November the 19th, 1863, by a president you might have heard of, Abraham Lincoln, and it's known as the Gettysburg Address. So called, and the field that he's talking about is literally the field of Gettysburg that is being turned into a a national monument for the for the dead soldiers, basically. So, the interesting facts around this is, like I say, most famous speech from the 19th century. People thought that Abraham Lincoln was a good public speaker, but that wasn't the point of the day. There was another speaker before him that spoke for over two hours, and the crowd loved it. If you look at what they actually said what this was going to be happening at this consecration of this graveyard is the fact that basically there'll be a few words by the president. We have one photo of this most famous speech, the Gettysburg Address, and it's of Lincoln sitting down because it took the cameraman so much time to sort of set it all up and he assumed that the speech would be going on for longer than that, that he's getting down after finishing it. And indeed, the crowd left and obviously, this is way before the advent of microphones and things like that. So only the people in the immediate vicinity could hear Abraham Lincoln. But everybody was still buzzing after the other speech. And so everybody went home, not really recognizing its importance. If you like, this is the most... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
famous speech that didn't whip up the crowd at the time. It's only when everything I've just said was printed in the newspapers in the following few days that people recognised what an incredibly eloquent summary of why we're fighting the civil war and the threat to the nation as a whole that it became enshrined almost immediately, but indeed after it was said, into kind of popular culture. American children will quite often read this out in various school events and things like that, particularly the first bit and the last bit, the middle area about consecrating these grounds, less so relevant. It is a masterclass in speaking, and indeed, some speeches can be incredibly short. One of the things, jumping forwards almost exactly 100 years and sort of still dealing with sort of civil rights, is you've got Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, and he electrified people because he wasn't just a great boxer, he was brilliant at saying things. He could give a good speech. He was funny. And having somebody that I could intellectually spar with and lose, or physically spar with and definitely lose, that is a powerful combination. So strength and intelligence. I lose in that situation every time. So you got an element there of, you know, the importance of public speaking. I'm going to go very dark for a moment because I actually do courses on public speaking. This is how I know about this. And hey, if you want, if you want to do something like this, I'll, I'll give you a the setup of what you have to do. You have to come to the course with a pre-prepared speech on what you do for business. So this is generally for like managers or salespeople or marketing people. So people who actually have to go out and present and people might want to, to be better at it. And you can always get better at it if you start looking at these skills and breaking down how did these other people make an impact because you don't need a huge Abraham Lincoln hat to be a good public speaker. So what you do is you bring that presentation and then you stand at the front in front of everybody else and then you do about three or four minutes of that presentation where I'm standing in the background with an iPad recording you. And then when everybody's done, I give no notes and I just play them to everybody because as everybody sits there watching themselves, it's a form of torture. But more importantly, you'll sit there and go, oh my goodness, how many times did I say um? Or why did I not look at the audience at all? Why was I staring at my feet? Or I'm not interacting with the slides at all. It's almost like the slides are happening there and I'm happening over here. And I need to actually interact with them a bit more to bring them to life, whatever it may be. But people will be sitting there screaming inside. But the great news for me as a trainer is at that point, I have their undivided attention because they all want to get better. But I use bits of speeches to show them you know, what good looks like and also what bad looks like as well. But the one person I never, ever use, and this is why I'm saying I'm going to go a bit dark for a moment, is Adolf Hitler. Now, this is perhaps the best example I can give you of somebody who was good at public speaking that everybody agrees was a terrible human being, pure evil, the evil personified, but still human. Let's not try and pretend that it couldn't happen again. But the thing is, Hitler rose to power in a democracy. How do you get people's attention? I just said, you need to speak out to them, you need to talk to them, you need to listen to them. And the point is that he had to do good speaking. You can go online, there are some photos of what looks like Hitler dancing on his own. And what he's actually doing is practicing his body language. How am I going to hold myself? What image do I want to project in front of a crowd? And he's doing it in front of a mirror. 
It is a grim fact that one of the first people he asked to help him with his public speaking was a Jewish man. So, like I say, if somebody's good at public speaking, the only thing you get to say about that is they're good at public speaking and nothing else. But obviously practice does help everybody. And, you know, if you've got someone like Hitler trying to do that. So let's move into the 21st century, into the world of politics. It was widely agreed, and I would also agree with this, that Barack Obama was just a magnificent public speaker. He had a great voice. He actually broke some of the rules. He would sometimes go, um, a lot or are a lot before he moves into the next thing, generally you should stay silent rather than filling it with what's known as dog words. Dog words or dog phrases are basically your brain saying, I've been silent for a little while, I need to say something else, I can't think of anything, quick make a noise, and that's where you get, um, and all those other ones. And so he does actually do that a bit, but he's such an accomplished speaker that he's able to do it and get away with it, basically. So he would have been my number one pick for the 21st century. But as I mentioned in passing a couple of times before, it turns out that we've got Vladimir Zelensky, a man who is able to speak sometimes in a foreign language and be good and powerful and come up with these sort of choppy one-liners as well, these things that sort of grab people's attention. But make no mistake, just like Obama, Zelensky has got people helping him with the script, you know, the speech writers and things like that. And obviously he comes back and I'm going to sort of like make a reference again to it. He comes from the world of comedy. He's media trained. He kind of knows all these rules already, but now rather than doing them to make you laugh, he's doing them to get your attention and helping to try and win a war. Some of his stuff he was saying, particularly in 2022, was downright Churchillian was the phrase people were saying, because the thing about Winston Churchill is, you know, Again, doesn't really fit into modern society. Lots of people are angry against him. And I'm going to say he was a man very much of his time. But there can be no doubt that during the darkest days of World War II, we needed speeches that Churchill did rather than something nuanced like, well, you know, the Nazis have got a point or something like that. We would have collapsed at that point. Instead, we needed to hear that we will fight them on the beaches or this is our finest hour, etc. You know, these are great moments, but I am about to ruin those Churchill speeches because here's the thing. All of them, as a matter of record, were said word for word, but there was no recording devices introduced to the Houses of Parliament until after World War Two. So what you're hearing is not the original. What you're hearing is Churchill basically for charity sat down and recorded them in the late 1940s for all of posterity. So you got the right man saying the right thing, but of course it said with just that little tinge of hindsight that we won. You know, it might well have sounded a bit different in 1940, let's say. So you can see that there is this whole twisty-turny element, you know, th this whole thing. And the phrase I keep using in the training is it's a performance because when you are standing up and doing a business presentation or a school presentation, I don't know how old you are. The point is, at that point, you got more in common with a politician or a stand up comic or the front person of a band than you actually do with your normal day job. Your point is you have an audience in front of you and you kind of need to command them. So let's get into some really old history, shall we? So let's talk about Titius 
or Korax. Now, there's great debate as to whether these are two different people, whether they are the same person with two different names, or indeed, they're both completely made up. But the point is, somebody had to have been around doing this in Syracuse in the 5th century BC. So the 400s BC, two and a half thousand years ago. The point is, Tisias and Korax were basically lawyers. And what you have to understand about ancient Greek law, because Syracuse, although it's in modern-day Sicily, it was a Greek colony, the basic way they did a legal system is to stop jury tampering is all the men, sorry, I guess, a male-dominated society, all the men would gather in the square and then they would pick a jury at the beginning of the day from the crowd. So I don't know who to bribe in the crowd. It could be anybody. And then basically all cases needed to last from sunup to sundown. So you had one day to make your case. Again, that means I can't get to the jury, so I can't bribe them. It's quite an efficient system, but obviously some cases are more complicated than others. But here's the thing. Titius or Corax was basically a lawyer, and he invented what's become known as rhetoric. And if you want a definition of rhetoric, is it's an illusion of a public speaker having a conversation with a crowd. Now, you can't do that. Just look at the stand-up comedians. They'll walk out and go, where's everybody here tonight? And you get as a response. It's just to warm up the crowd, basically. Sometimes say, anybody here from like New York? Anybody here from New York City? And get a few, go. okay. And then they'll go into the New York bit. So it's an illusion. Point here is, going back to Titius and Corax, before I talk about politicians, is the point of rhetoric was not to find out who was guilty or innocent. It was to win the argument to create this illusion, because if I feel like I like that public speaker, I'm more likely to go with that public speaker, which means if I am, let's say, the lawyer who is defending the witness, then you might well vote that witness to be innocent. So that's the idea. And I find that really interesting. Again, this is, gives you no moral compass whatsoever. It's a skill, a trick, an illusion, a performance. Call it whatever you want. And so what we've got with politicians is you'll get classic lines like, you know, what we want to do is give you a better tomorrow. Well, I want a better tomorrow. I'll vote for you. But do you really think the other party wants to give you a terrible tomorrow? It's one of these meaningless phrases that sounds like it's got substance, but doesn't really the more you pick at it. The classic bit of rhetoric is where, I mean, obviously rhetorical questions come from rhetoric and definition of rhetorical question is a question that doesn't need an answer. But you put it into a speech in a slightly different way. You'll say to somebody like, let's play a little game. Imagine I am a politician and I'm speaking on television. You're listening to thinking, am I, am I your kind of person or not? Okay. Do you know what's wrong with the country today? I'll tell you what it is. It's the out of control inflation. We need to bring inflation down. The standard of living is being eroded across everywhere. Now, the thing is there at the beginning is I did basically two rhetorical questions in a row. And the thing is, as I said, you know what's wrong with the country today? Your brain, actually, if you think about it, well, there could be five different things. There could be war in Ukraine, could be inflation, could be unemployment, could be the political system's a mess, whatever. It could be, you know, a global warming. But I picked something that's reasonable. Inflation is indeed a problem at time of recording. And everybody's fed up with high inflation or relatively high inflation. And so when I say it, it's like, yeah, I was thinking that. Oh, he's thinking what I'm thinking. I'll vote for him. He knows what he's talking about. It was a trick. I could have gone in any direction. The only time I lose you is if I say, do you know what's really affecting the country at the moment? Do you know what the real problem is? Alien invasion. I've lost you at that point because nobody's thinking that. You just think, idiot. 
So, yeah, it's it's all a trick and it's all well rehearsed as well. You know, saying these things, giving people an opportunity to fill their brains with the answer. And then I say the answer that's in your head. Oh, you know, we're vibing. We are creating that illusion of having a conversation. No, it's all going one way. I'm saying what I want. It's literally on the auto cue or whatever. I don't actually have an auto cue in front of me right now. I just find this whole topic of public speaking absolutely fascinating. You get people getting really sort of fed up with other people. There's another trick that I'm going to sort of like let, let you watch out for. There's the rule of three. You get it literally with Julius Caesar. Veni vidi vici, which in English is I came, I saw, I conquered. His summary of the Gallic Wars. Beautiful three lines. And it's this rule of three. We really like threes all the time. Trilogies tend to be better than other types of stories or ongoing sagas or whatever. But you might get something like, well, let's let's pick Barack Obama. Yes, we can. Or let's pick his successor, Donald Trump. Build the wall or lock her up or hang Mike Pence. All of those are three. And if you think about a joke, there's basically three bits of the joke. There's the setup line, there's the follow-up line, and then there's the punchline, if you like. The area of three. Nobody quite knows why three works with human beings, but we like threes, if you like. So it's, it's really interesting to me. And again, if you combine these threes, if you combine your body language reinforcing, and obviously I can't talk about body language while I'm doing a podcast, but obviously if I say, I'm really glad to be here in Birmingham today. As I shake my head, it's like, mm, hang on. You know, the words are one I want to hear because I'm from Birmingham, but he's shaking his head. That means he doesn't want to be in Birmingham. Get him. And so, yeah, you have to be careful about this stuff. Sometimes body language can reinforce what you're saying. If people are loud and confident and using big open body language, but also it can destroy you. If you're sort of like sweating heavily, now it could be just a hot day, but if you're sweating heavily, that tends to be a sign that you're nervous. And again, if I'm saying, oh, everything's fine, drip, drip, drip. It's like, I'm not sure everything's fine. While we're on the topic of body language, I want to jump back to the ancient Greeks. Different one this time now. Gentleman called Eschines, and he was about a century after Tisias and Corax. And basically, he said that using body language was, in essence, cheating. That you should tuck your hands away. That you shouldn't distract people with your movements. And if you've ever seen, and, you know, that's nearly two and a half thousand years ago. But you'll still see it in things like Napoleon portraits, where you see him tucking his hand away. It was basically considered bad manners to gesticulate. Whereas in the 20th century and 21st, go for it! Wave those things around. But I'm going to finish off today with what I consider the greatest speech in history. Maybe in pop culture too. Now, this is an example where you are not going to agree with the politics of it. But here's the thing. Everything I've said so far kind of gets broken by this one. This person did not have a teleprompter there. Did not have a screenwriter. Clearly, they'd been thinking about it to be able to say this. And also, you definitely won't agree with it. So the situation is this. We have Lieutenant Colonel Tim Collins. He is the leader of the 1st Battalion of the Royal Irish Regiment of the British Army. Okay? And it's about to be the Iraq War. The one started by Tony Blair. Remember? He was there with Bush. Okay? And what happened was he drove up to a group of troops and they were about to go into battle. And this would have been completely forgotten had it not been for these troops actually having an embedded journalist who, when the lieutenant colonel gets out, 
you know, realized, oh, there's going to be a speech here and wrote it down in shorthand. So there's no original recording of this. It has actually been re-recorded. Tim Collins is Northern Irish and it is done by Kenneth Branagh, who comes from Northern Ireland. And he does a version of it, which I'm sure you can find on YouTube. But the point is, he didn't have a microphone. He didn't, you know, if you like, this is like the Battle of Agincourt speech, or indeed the Braveheart speech, only we actually know what the person said at the time. And again, you may disagree with the war in Iraq, but imagine you're a soldier about to go into the first war in your life. Is this what you need to hear from your commanding officer? Now, I'm not going to do the whole thing, but I'm going to do basically the opening, the equivalent of two paragraphs. Here we go. We go to Iraq to liberate, not to conquer. We will not fly our flags in their country. We are entering Iraq to free a people, and the only flag which will be flown in that ancient land is their own. Show respect for them. There are some who are alive at this moment who will not be alive shortly. Those who do not wish to go on that journey, we will not send. As for the others, I expect you to rock their world. Wipe them out if that is what they choose. But if you are ferocious in battle, remember to be magnanimous in a victory. Iraq is steeped in history. It is the site of the Garden of Eden, of the Great Flood and the birthplace of Abraham. Tread lightly there. You will see things that no man could pay to see, and you'll have to go a long way to find a more decent, generous and upright people than the Iraqis, you will be embarrassed by their hospitality even though they have nothing. Don't treat them as refugees, for they are in their own country. Their children will be poor in years to come. They will know that the light of liberation in their lives was brought by you. So there we go. That's the opening of that. Now, if I was a soldier waiting to go into battle, that is, that's got some nuance there, talking about how... Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You know don't treat the locals terribly, you know, unlike what the Americans did in Vietnam, for example. And it is saying, you know, we will attack. We will rock their world if that's what they choose. Choose, You know, in other words, we will fight. We're not trying to shy away from a fight, but we're not looking for a fight is the key one. It is nuanced. It is subtle. It is breathtaking in its construction. And it's exactly what somebody needs to hear as a 19-year-old thinking, have I made the right life choices to sitting here in this battalion of armoured vehicles? So there we go. We have been all over the place. We've done British history, American history, done a bit of Greek history, Roman history, we've gone all over there. But I'm saying that the world of public speaking is a fascinating topic, which I think you could tell I could probably do another maybe hour or two on or more, but we just don't have time. As always, thanks for listening and another podcast coming soon. <laughs>